I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Janine Chastain. We're collaborating on curated conversations to explore how the industry is changing. Together, we'll find ways to create new solutions to current challenges while elevating the value of architects. Welcome Welcome to to Practice Practice Disrupted. Listeners, hi Janine. Hey Evelyn. Hey listeners. Today we're exploring the role that knowledge plays in running an architecture firm or studio, and actually how that contributes to better business. We are meeting an entrepreneur who has built a brand new technology in this space from the ground up um, that primarily looks at helping the AE industry as a whole manage their knowledge on at a firm level basis. Yes, and knowledge, as all of us know, and we're going to hear more about in this episode, is an inherent part of running a business. It plays a critical role in keeping our architecture studios operational from project development to project planning, marketing, staffing, and so much more. And frankly, our use of technology is accelerating the need and use of of knowledge across what we're working on every day. Um, so we're looking at new ways of how knowledge is being created and shared. And I think what else is interesting is the architecture industry is full of knowledge workers, but most architecture firms actually struggle with a way to systematize that knowledge so that it is easily and accessible to everyone in the firm. If you think about every conversation or email or communication that you have that is just sent to you um, and how much that information does or doesn't even get out to your the rest of your team at the project level unless you communicate that back out to them. And that's exactly why I wanted to bring our guest on today. So Chris Parsons has spent his career kind of shifting towards this role and launching a company focused on knowledge. And he is going to be able to share so much insight on how knowledge and data is used to tackle larger conversations within firms. Um, one we talk about is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I know he's um, having similar conversations with all of these different firms that he's working with as his clients on a regular basis. So I've asked him to join us so that he can especially speak to his role as an entrepreneur, but his work in um, serving mid to large size firms on this knowledge management company that he's created. So here is his bio. Chris Parson is the founder and CEO of Knowledge Architecture. He is responsible for research and development, sales and marketing, and organizational development. So he's obviously wearing a lot of different hats. He is the executive producer of KA Connect, an annual management conference for the AEC industry. And Chris has been a technology leader in the AEC industry since 2002, including serving as chief information officer for Steinberg Architects and the information technology director for SMWM, which is now Perkins and Will, but I have a long love for the people that have worked at SMWM. Christopher also has a degree in history from Wake Forest University. He is an avid reader, hiker, bird watcher, and cook. So his company is called Knowledge Architecture, and they build software, community, and best practices to help architecture 
and engineering firms find, share, and manage knowledge. Their software platform is Synthesis, a social intranet which integrates with Dell Tech, Newforma, and Open Asset. They also run an annual knowledge management conference for the AEC industry called KA Connect, as well as a client community of practice for Synthesis intranet teams called KA Advance. Founded in 2009 and serving over 100 AEC clients, Knowledge Architecture is privately held, employee-owned, and passionate about co-creating and sharing best practices to advance the state of knowledge management in the AEC industry. Let's cut to the interview. Thanks for having me here. So my background, um, I was a history major in college and graduated in 1999, which meant that if you had a pulse and you knew anything about technology, you had a job in the technology industry because it was just so nascent at the time. And so my plan had been to go to law school, but I got some really good advice from somebody in my senior year of college, which said, law school will be there. Go take a year, two, three years and go work for a little while. And if you want to come back, you can. And I didn't go back. Um, So I got lucky. I got into this technology consulting company and I flew all over the world and work with all over the country and work with all kinds of different interesting industries and and got into kind of move from kind of basic technology like network and infrastructure into software development. And right as I was starting to peak in software development, you know, right at the age of 23, um, I got laid off because the dot-com boom hit us and 9-11 hit. And it was just in San Francisco, there were no jobs. Like it was bad. And The job I found, I had this criteria that I really wanted to work in the city because I didn't have a car and I wanted to walk to work. And when I put those parameters on my job hunt, I basically got law firms and architecture firms. That's who was hiring and who fit those criteria. And so I took a job in an architecture firm to ride out that recession to get back into the software industry. And what happened was I fell in love with architecture. I didn't know anything really about it coming into it. And it was this amazing blend of law and science and community and and engineering and aesthetics and politics. It was just all these things I was interested in were involved, especially the kind of work we were doing. I worked at a firm called SMWM. We were doing projects like the Ferry Building and the new main library and the Metreon. We were doing all this interesting work in the city of San Francisco, which touched the community. And so I ended up staying there for five years as their IT director, then went to Steinberg Architects for three years as their chief information officer and then started our company in 2009. So never went back to law school and never got back into into tech. I just fell fell in this industry and fell in love. Wow. Hearing that story, I actually realized I don't think I've ever known you, uh, known your background and how you kind of got into all of this. So that was really interesting to hear. So can you tell us just um, a little bit more about what knowledge architecture is and, you know, how it serves the architecture profession, and and why what you do is kind of so critical and important to the profession? Sure. Well, I think first and foremost, we are a software company, and we're based in San Francisco. That is where the vast majority of our revenue comes from. It's from software licensing. We're privately held. um, We're employee-owned. And the thing that we're really passionate about is, you know, co-creating and sharing best practices to advance the state of how knowledge gets managed in our AEC industry. So we work with about 50-50 architecture and engineering firms. Um, I came from architecture, as I'd said before, this has been a great learning opportunity for me to to understand the engineering side of our industry too. 
So the software platform is called Synthesis. It's an intranet for architects and architecture and engineering firms. Um, you might have some listeners who don't know what an intranet is. Um, so you should think of it as an internal website for your firm. So people within the firm would go there to find you know, information they need to do their job. So things like policies, procedures, standards, best practices, a list of projects and who worked on them and people and what their skills are and who worked on what. You go there to find news about what's happening at the firm. So leadership updates on strategy or different practice areas or initiatives or new hires and promotions, all the things. And you go there to learn, right? So there's new learning and development opportunities. You can ask questions and get answers across the firm, share lessons learned, emerging best practices. It's kind of like Wikipedia, LinkedIn, and Google had a baby right? And it's kind of wrapped into one thing inside the firm. It's kind of that one-stop shop for folks. So that's, that's the software. And that's what kind of people know us the most for. But we kind of realized really early on in the company's journey that it takes a lot more than software to manage knowledge, you know, within a company. You know, I'd say that technology is probably 20% of it. And so we've spent a lot of time building a community around, um, around our company and, and that's a community of our clients and then there's a broader community that touches anyone in the ac industry that's interested in learning about knowledge management and so we've got a conference we do webinars you know we do all kinds of different things to help advance the industry and that's that's been really really enjoyable <laughs> but it's also helped our clients be successful with our product and be successful with their business and not and managing knowledge so it's a holistic approach. And that's something that we, I think, drew a lot of inspiration from time and practice. Many of us worked in architecture or engineering firms before coming here. And I think we're inspired by the holistic ways that architects and engineers approach their buildings or their bridges or whatever it is, and really understanding all the broader things um, that are connected to it. Can you give us an example of how you've seen this platform provide value to a firm that, you know, perhaps another firm would not have access to that kind of um, information? Yeah, I think one of the things that would be a good example, you know, people have written a lot about how kind of architecture firms go through these different kind of phases at different sizes of their organization. So, you know, it's one kind of practice when it's one to 10 people. It's a different deal when it's 10 to 30 then at 80 and then 150, there are like these inflection points as the, or as the organization grows. And we usually come in at Knowledge Architecture kind of when firms are hitting that 50, 60 person, like that's probably our smallest clients. And it's when it's gone from, you know, two to four founding partners who have all the answers in their head, they can all see each other within a floor and they just, their internet is the people, right? And so what's our policy? Where's our standard? They're always asking each other, right? And at some point when you kind of, maybe you're chasing multiple markets, maybe you add another office, maybe you've got different levels or, you know, multiple different project managers or, or experts in a given sector or building type, it starts to really pay dividends to write things down. <laughs> and to be able to share that knowledge, to be able to improve it over time, to make you more resilient if a key person leaves, sometimes the founders turn out they want to retire and they want to transition out of the business. So there's this point where like becoming more intentional about managing knowledge and transferring, it becomes really important to a company's journey. And that's typically where we come in and help. That's a great example, Chris. Um, but I think the value conversation is so critical to what you're offering because knowledge and information has become 
a important part of practice and it's almost transactional and architects are constantly looking for information and trying Mm -hmm. to research things and use that in their work. So I can see many ways that this becomes a valuable resource to firms. Mm. I think in COVID was a huge example too, um, especially when people were forced home very quickly. So our clients who had really good practices and procedures already documented were in really good shape. It gave them a really good way to communicate and get messages across consistently. Like we had clients that were doing daily you know, video recordings from the leadership, right? Or long kind of post explaining, here's what we're seeing, here's what's going on. So for companies who had that really good habit of communicating broadly and doing really good internal communications, this really helped them navigate the pandemic. And we worked with other clients who were trying to get there in a hurry because they were a single office, right? And so they didn't have to write as much stuff down. And now all of a sudden there's 70 offices or hundred offices because everyone's got a solo office working from home. And so this drove a lot of that maturity on the knowledge process for them of this COVID um, pandemic. did. So Chris, building on that idea, why don't we explain to our listeners why knowledge management is important? If you can give us a framework for that, that'd be helpful. Yeah. So I think I'd start by saying that um, all architecture firms are knowledge-based firms. A lot of times when I'll give a talk and I'll, and I'll, start talking about knowledge management, it's like a fish that's in water that doesn't realize it's in water. And then it looks around, it's like, oh yeah, we're swimming in knowledge, right? That is, that is what we are doing here. And so because of that, I think all architecture firms are actually doing knowledge management already. They just don't call it that. Firms are constantly building new things and learning new things. They're learning new software. They're using new materials. They're designing new building types. They're using new assemblies. There's just all this kind of um, learning and innovation happening. So then I mentioned that, that kind of before about growth, right? You want to then capture and share that knowledge. But a lot of times that's not systematic, right? It's kind of ad hoc and it's not intentional. And so KM is all about, sorry, knowledge management, um, is all about making the best available use of your knowledge. And so you can achieve your firm's goals. So I talked about growth before, but there's a lot of other goals, right? Ownership or leadership transition, increasing profitability, improving design quality, improving employee engagement, diversity, equity, and inclusion. There's just, you can go on and on about like what really matters the most to a firm. And so, you know, one of the key tricks to getting knowledge management right, and I've seen over the years I've been in this field, folks can get pursuing knowledge management goals for their own purposes and get attracted to shiny objects around managing knowledge and forget to connect that back into what's most important for the company. And so there's a ton of things you can do with knowledge management, intranets and communities of practice and corporate universities and mentorship and all these things. But like you want to pick the things that you do that really support and help your company go where it's trying to go. And so I gave a talk a few years ago called Smarter by Design. And the subtitle was a knowledge management manifesto for the AEC industry. And that's, that's kind of my version of KM 101. And so I, I sent you guys a link so you can put it in the show notes. But in that, it introduces this periodic table of common knowledge management elements so that folks kind of see the breadth and depth of how much knowledge management knowledge there is to manage and what the teams who support this work look like. And what I found interesting in our prior conversations is that you are able mm. to help firms start looking at data points within that information. It can, I don't know if that was ever intentional, but 
you know, when we worked on the Leadership Institute work, the actually AIA forefront, I should say, that you were mentioning, um, you can see how people are staffed, how many times they're on a certain project. And it gives you, if you set up the data in that way, mm-hmm. then have an opportunity to see data um, that you may not have otherwise had um, an ability to quantify. Yeah, it's a um, powerful, <laughs> it's funny, we just ran a, um, a webinar uh, two weeks ago um, from LS3P, they were talking about managing project data. And one of the things that Katie Robinson, they're, she's the uh, chief uh, marketing and knowledge uh, manager, right? So she runs the marketing and the knowledge management group. And she was very, very good at connecting. If you get X you know, data points on projects, here are all the value points it can create across the firm. Anywhere from professional liability insurance renewals to pursuing awards to proposals and showing qualifications to providing precedents for younger folks to help them understand, you know, typical square footages or beds or whatever it might be. And so the term that we like to think about is you want to improve the return on information. So it's a different ROI, but right, as you think about how do you maximize when you capture information, how much value you can drive out of it. And um, it's an art, right? And it's something that we continue to get better at, our clients continue to get better at. Um, but I've definitely seen a mature since we started and I'm not taking credit. We're not taking credit for this, but I think the kind of the focus and the intentionality around managing data has certainly taken off. At the top of the conversation, you mentioned that, you know, there's a lot of firms playing, playing catch up because of COVID and because, you know, they went from one office, one physical office to now a hundred offices. So as firms look at coming back, after COVID and having a more flexible workplace, you know, where you're not necessarily going to see all of your coworkers when you come into the office, unless there's some intentionality behind bringing everyone together. How does knowledge management increase in value? And you you mentioned also that technology is 20% of the solution. So, you know, what are what are other things that they need to do to ensure they are properly collecting knowledge and and putting it actually in the right place and adopting new policies and processes. And how do you respond to people who say, I don't have the time to do this? So I think kind of going back to first principles, there is more knowledge in your practice than you can manage. Like that's just a fact that people will, once they start looking at this work, they have to, there's a, they're coming to terms with that fact that it's hard to do, right? It's like all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, there's all these things we aren't managing. There's all this stuff we could capture. It's overwhelming. And so I think quickly getting from that position to like what knowledge matters most is really important. And I mentioned this connection about making the knowledge management strategy subordinate to the business strategy before And so again, it's getting very clear on where the company's priorities are and then figuring out what knowledge you need to support whatever that is. So if you're trying to grow, if you're trying to add a new office, if you're trying to improve your design quality, then that means looking at the specific systems, processes, standards, learning approaches, whatever it is that helps you get there. Instead of trying to kind of improve everything because it can be completely overwhelming. So I think that prioritization process is really important because it can be very demoralizing to try and do it all. Um, And it's better to pick your spots. And I think, you know, in general, the creativity of architects and engineers is their friend. Sometimes it can also be challenging because there's so many good ideas, 
Right. And so I think it's a matter of being able to figure out which ones um, matter most. Because what you want to do is you want to be able to point to not why this is a good idea for the knowledge management team or why this is a, you want to show like, this is going to help us move the needle on something that helps us become the company we want to become and where we need to go next. And so I think if you don't have that, then it's really hard to make a case because people are change averse. And I'm one of the people that thinks, and that's a good thing in many ways, right? I, I think, you know, there's a lot of change for change sake that we see. And I think being able to really prove that it's worth the energy and effort to move and to take something up and deprioritize something else really matters. So Chris, I think, you know, in 2020, we've obviously learned a lot having to navigate transition through COVID-19 and our practices. What can you share about how this relates to some of the lessons learned um, from 2020? So we, I mentioned our kind of commitment to community at the beginning. What, what is true is that like we, we were really good at in-person events. That's kind of what we know how to do. We know how to, we run a conference that's been very successful. We do lots of workshops with our clients and other things. And what we were okay on was virtual. Like we did monthly, we called them office hours webinars and they were pretty helpful. And we were showing, you know, something somebody was doing with knowledge management that they were really good at. But like the whole thing, it was really, we were in person first and the kind of the virtual was designed to be kind of this bridge kind of between in-person events because that was the heart of our community. Obviously this year changed that. And so one of the things that we did right away is we started up what we call business roundtables. So we started a monthly CEO roundtable for our clients to help them navigate COVID. And as the year played on, navigate, you know, kind of George Floyd and navigate, you know, some of the election turmoil with inside firms. So there just were things that happened in 2020. And having that group of peers that they could learn from and with was really helpful for them. And COVID specifically, it's been interesting to kind of watch the wind blow everybody out to their homes, watch people be there and figure out how to cope, and now watch folks really wrestle with how do we return. And what everyone's saying, right, to a person in our CEO roundtable, but we're also doing one for COOs and communications IT, is that coming back is going to be a lot harder than going out. Um, You know, we didn't have a choice. Like, it was, you were out by this time. And now coming back, it's not so simple. And what, what, what everyone's saying is it's really hard to run a hybrid model. And it's really hard, especially for a design team, where three or four people just start sketching you know, at a whiteboard or something like that. And then they have to remember, wait, I've got three teammates who are at home. They're not part of this, this design you know, problem we're trying to solve. And so now we need to choose between slowing down and letting the inspiration in the moment pass so we can become more inclusive right? Or just to keep going and leave people out of this. And it's a really tricky thing to navigate. And so some firms are really trying to wrestle with, do we stay more like this, like more work from home and purpose so that it's really easy. If everyone's on digital screens, it's easy to collaborate. If everyone's in person, it's easy to collaborate. If it's hybrid, it makes it really hard. And so what I'm starting to sense is that some firms are saying, we are going to be a work from home first culture, and we're gonna use the office for special occasions, for big meetings, to use a 3D printer, whatever that might be, or we wanna be all the way back in the office. And you'll be an exception. You can work from home if you have to, if there's a family thing, but we feel in order to do good design work, you all have to be here. 
And what I suspect is there might be brands built around that, right? There might be people that want to go work every day in the office in that kind of culture. And there might be people that want to work in a remote. And that might be kind of how firms differentiate from each other in the future. You know, we just released our hybrid practice playbook, and it's really all about like the hybrid model is the most difficult one to to, to create a culture, to create um, processes, to ensure equity across the board. Um, so we completely understand <laughs> where you're headed there. So we've we've talked about kind of knowledge management or KM. Uh, at the, at the, during the first half of our conversation. But I think there's an interesting story too, and you began to speak about it a little bit about kind of the development of the software and technology itself. And, you know, the increase in dollars that VC, VCs are putting into um, Contact or um, AEC Tech or she, there's, a, there's another um, built tech. I've seen that one. Built tech, you know, <laughs> yeah. but anyways, this is, this is really actually a, a growing field. And I know there's some firms out there that have written incredible Rhino scripts that, you know, if they could even figure out a way to package digital assets and resell them, that's, a, that's another revenue line for them. So can you tell us a little bit about, about knowledge architecture and your company as a, as a product and how you've begun to build that out? Yeah, there's a few things I think that are interesting to unpack. Um, I've been lucky to kind of spend time. A lot of people were very generous with their time with me when I was getting started. And, you know, saying like people that were further down the entrepreneurship journey, I had no idea I wanted to be an entrepreneur growing up. I'm not one of those people that knew this since they were eight years old. You know, this is like, this was a kind of a surprise to me. And, you know, the reason I got into business um, was about quality of life. And, you know, that was initially about quality of life for me. And then as I built a team, it was about the team and even extended to our clients. And I think that my kind of the advice that when I get asked that question now is to deeply understand why you want to start a business and then design and build a business which meets the goals, those goals, not the business you are kind of quote unquote supposed to build or you see other people building. And, you know, for me, I came across a book recently, like two or three years ago, called The Advantage by Patrick Lencioni. And it's, I can't recommend it highly enough. It talks about organizational health. And one of the most important exercises in the book that he suggests, and we worked through this as, as an organization, was why do we exist, really? Not the kind of the sanitized website version or the kind of inspirational marketing slogan, but seriously, are you here to make money? Are you here to be famous? Are you here to change the world? Are you here to be a service to other people? Is there a problem you really want to chase? Is it lifestyle or quality of life? Because you can be motivated by more than one thing, but I think deep down, like there's something. There's some kind of like primal force that's getting you out of bed and made you leave a safe job and start something, right? And I think the more honest you can be with yourself and your team about what that thing is really, like the more successful you're going to be. This does impact kind of the, the product, the company we built, because, you know, I read a book called Small Giants by Bo Burlingham really early on, too. And I figured out that, like, what I wanted to be was a small giant, right? The small giant doesn't have to be a huge company that raises money. It can be, you know, a niche business that focuses on an industry I fell to love, which was AE, right? It can be sustainable. It can be employee owned. And you can optimize for quality of life over financial returns. 
And that's what you have to do when you have investors. You have, you are responsible. You have their money. The reason they're investing in you, mostly. I mean, I'm not saying that investors don't care about other things about the environment and, you know, improving society. But really, they need to see a return on their money. Um, I wanted to find a way where we could optimize on quality of life and to, to figure out like how we can have a good balance around like how much we work and when and where and who we work with and what we work on and who we work for, what our values are. And to be able to be in control and determine those things was really important. So all that to be said, like I figured out that software was a really good way to get those things. You know, there's a really nice thing about a recurring revenue stream that comes along with a software business. Because I watched for eight years in the two architecture firms I watched in, I watched the agony the partners went through about watching the cliff of when the backlog would run out and where's the next project coming from. And, you know, I was lucky enough to work with Kathy Simon, who was the S in, in SMWM. And she was good friends with Richard Rogers. And I remember, I'll never forget her telling me Richard Rogers talking about the cliff. And she's like, but you're Richard Rogers, like you're worried about this? And it's like, doesn't matter how famous you get and how well-known your practice are and how good you are. Like that is, a, that is a reality of being in the design business that like was very stressful on those folks. And I just, part of designing KA was like, I wanna be able to sleep every night, you know, and not really worry about the payroll piece. So that got us, you know, the software thing made sense. And, you know, then the pieces start falling in place. Like I already knew kind of software. I knew architecture. I was in love with this problem around knowledge and we experimented and then we found ourselves doing what we're doing. And so I guess what triggered me was the Rhino script thing. That's kind of the difference between an, an invention and an innovation, right? Is that's the gem of something, but like you have to build a whole business and a team and a vision around it that allows you to deliver that Rhino script to somebody sustainably and figure out how you're gonna make payroll and impact the world and those kind of things. So I have found honestly designing knowledge architecture to be equally as gratifying as designing our software product because it's designing a business is a super interesting thing to do. That's a really good point because you can have a great idea but if you don't figure out the business model behind that idea, you don't have a business, um, which is kind of the critical qualifier of being an entrepreneur. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, you know, to follow up on that thread, um, are you, can you share a little bit more about this R&D process and the, you know, the kind of um, discovery process that goes into navigating that growth, either from the technology standpoint or the business venture standpoint? Yeah, our starting point for R&D is, and it's going to sound really, it's going to sound really obvious, but it, it's like, this is one of those things in business, like the things that you hear all the time, the cliches, they're cliches for a reason, but it, oh, it takes a certain amount of experience to understand how wise those cliches are when you get started. And ours is very client centric. And by that, I mean, like we, our clients tell us where to take the product, like and, and part of our goal is to stay incredibly close to them. So I mentioned things like our conference and these business roundtables. In addition to those things, we've got an online community. We do daily client success interactions and sales interactions. We get such a wide funnel of feedback that comes to us. And we have deliberately designed and built that funnel to be wide and to be good at moving the energy of our community into our team so that when we go to design, it's crystal clear, like our roadmap, it's never a problem. Like we always have plenty to work on and we are generally pretty good 
about knowing what the priorities of those things are and in what order. So we don't spend any time around the office saying like, you know, what would be a really cool idea for us? It's like, no, 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 we've heard, like we know what we need to do. And so then it's like, well, how do you design, you know, once you've got all this feedback? Um, and, you know, this is where me spending that time and other folks in my organization spending time inside design firms was really, really valuable because I watched precedent research happen over and over and over again. So we look at the best stuff. We look at the best consumer tech, the best enterprise products. We look sometimes even outside of software, like there's some cool stuff happening on Instacart that we learn from to build our product, you know, whatever it is. Um, and so we try and have a really wide funnel of what we look at from a precedent research. And then it's this iterative design process where we get lots of feedback along the way. Again, like I watched architects lead a very iterative, inclusive design process for a long time and it got itself into my bloodstream. And so like, that's the way that we design and we ship products um, now. And it's my wife and I actually lead the design team together, which is a whole nother story, but it's really, um, but it's really fun. And she has a, um, she has an interesting background of being an executive recruiter, stopped doing that, went to art school, got her MFA at the Art Institute in San Francisco and as a novelist and an artist and a poet, but then she also works on product design with me. So she's got this great like business art, you know, sensibility and it, we make a good dynamic pair there. And so I just feel very, very blessed to be able to work the way that we do. You know, I, I want to pause and just acknowledge that um, Kathy, Simon, you mentioned it a little bit mm -hmm. earlier. We both have that in common. We worked for Kathy and I, mm -hmm. I just, I feel like she uh, taught me so much about, pursuing marketing and and mm -hmm. trying to win work in the San Francisco Bay Area. So um, I think it's pretty cool. You got to work on the ferry building with her too. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, I mean, the company, I was at the company while it did the ferry building. I was, you know, plugging in routers and fixing people's InDesign, you know, oh. application, whatever. <laughs> I, I was still running IT, but, you know, what's so, what's so cool about, you know, they, the culture of that company really impacted us because it was a company that was obsessed with ideas and curiosity and learning and doing great design and being invested in the community. And I tried to install that in ethos in our company. And I watched this like multidisciplinary, multi-person collaborative design process go. We had these, I don't know if this was the case when you were work for Kathy, but there was this lunchtime forum series and we'd watch projects from the initial meeting with the client all the way through schematic and conceptual design and detailed work site tours like it was just like for someone who wasn't an architect to be immersed in that was just a gift i watched them balance the needs and priorities of clients and engineers and contract you know just like that's a dance it's a dance that goes on and it's true in software too it is a dance between you know your clients and between the engineering and design and the team that has to deliver the software um, Kathy is interesting because she retired, right? And I still live in San Francisco. And pre-pandemic, I would see her at the ferry building, you know, at the farmer's market that we run here every Saturday. And what's so cool about architecture is that she gets to keep going there, right? That building reopened in 2002, 2003. It's an amazing part of the city. Um, one of my favorite parts of the city. And that's cool about architecture because the buildings live in the real world, whereas in tech, it, they tend to last more than software does, right? There's this just kind of like this visceral impact for architecture. On the other hand, we can fix our stuff after we ship it. Right. <laughs> and, you know, as a designer, that's great because we get new ideas the day after we push it, we can just push a fix and update it or, 
you know, continually iterate once it's live. So it's this, that's kind of a nice thing about being on the software side. Obviously on the architecture side, it's just this like a legacy and this impact you make on the city. I also wanted to give you and Evelyn a chance to talk about this idea because last season we talked a lot about the differences between architecture and tech. Mm -hmm. Um, But I thought I'd give you guys a chance to talk about perhaps the similarities and how your training in architecture um, enhances. I mean, you're already hinting at that, how it enhances what you're doing Mm -hmm. now. No, well, it was interesting, Chris, as you were talking about the various different things you are designing and you're designing your business, you're designing the product. It was really great to end kind of with that story of the ferry building and, and the lasting impact. But, I, but at the same time, as you were saying all those things about what you were designing, I was like, in a way, this is the ultimate design problem for an architect. And you're not up against any of the constraints of of a, of a timeline <laughs> or mm-hmm. a finality, mm-hmm. right? Um, because you can, it can, it continues to evolve as the user's preferences um, and new technologies are available. Um, it is, it is much easier for you to evolve the design of the product than it is for us, honestly, to make a building more energy efficient year after year after year, right? So for me, I've always been interested in the design of processes and and, mm-hmm. and businesses, and it would be it would be really great, I think, to hear your perspective again. Even though you've begun to de- to to go into that about how design impacts and how you bring every all your learnings from architecture and are inspired by that to your business, but also, you know, what can our younger listeners kind of take away from what they're doing now, especially the ones that are like. I'm not sure if architecture is the right thing for me. I think there's still a lot of lessons to be learned in, in what they're doing within a firm and how that translates out um, to, to other entrepreneurial possibilities. Yeah, I, I do think the design of business is super interesting. And I, and I think, well, one of the things that, and, and this was partly the time that I was in those companies, because I think there was this like great awakening around design that started in the mid 2000s. And I just happened to be in a design firm when it was happening. And they're like, yeah, no kidding. That's what we've done for a living. But I think, you know, and all the design thinking stuff got big at the Stanford D school and IDEO and whatever. But it was this kind of being in a firm just makes you realize on a regular basis that everything is designed. And everything that's that we encounter in the world was designed, you know, from the smallest thing to the, to the biggest thing to from a physical object to an intangible object to an organization. And, you know, I love when I come across a well-designed company and you can feel, and it's anything, it's from Delfina Pizzeria, you know, like I I just take inspiration from like, you can tell this business knows who it is, it knows what its values are and its priorities are, and it's figured out the things that it wants to be excellent at. Like when I look at a a well-designed firm, that's the way that I look at it. And, and I see firms in our industry that are so smart and so well-designed, like we decided we're going to go all in on whatever it is, education or healthcare. We're gonna know everything that there is to know about education. We'll, we'll, be such, we'll know so much that we'll be a really great rest, resource for our clients because they know that we're touching 50 or 100 or 200 other institutions like them. And we're gonna be able to make more out of that knowledge and help advance whatever that uh, market is. And so when you see the coherence of 
you know, a good focus on a business and then how it makes marketing easier and how it makes design easier and how it makes attracting people who want to work on that easier. Um, that makes me really excited. And so watching firms that were really well designed, like Kieran Timberlake was a huge inspiration for us to build knowledge architecture. I got to see them speak. Refabricating architecture had come out right as I was kind of starting down this journey. And I'm like, wow, that's a firm that really knows who it is and really knows what it wants to be. And it wants to compete on knowledge, right? It was one of the first firms I think was, that was very visible about their investments in R&D. And I, um, I was very motivated by it, but they still, they weren't huge, you know, like they're the manageable size and they just were very, they got to be selective on what projects they worked on and who they got to work with. And so I think part of your question was around like what I learned from watching firms. And I think the good design firms design themselves and they figure out how they're going to be around in 50 or a hundred or years and, and to kind of be a long-term organization. In the technology space, you know, VC and I even alluded to it at the top of the, the hour was mm -hmm. it w is one way of getting funding. And it's, I think it's the most one that is often talked about in the press. But there is a way to go about bootstrapping the company and, and growing mm -hmm. it. So tell us kind of how you've grown um, KA and why you chose to take the path that you did. Yeah. So um, why we chose to take the path that we did, I, and, and this is, I, I should be very clear, I'm not an anti-VC person. It's just that I'm a strong pro bootstrapping person. And so I think there are lots of cases, if you want to build something huge, or it's going to be very capital intensive, or, you know, it just depends on what your goals are. Venture capital might be the exact right route for you. That's not why we got into business. We got into business for quality of life reasons, and we wanted to be a small giant. And so for us to be able to do that, you know, it was designing the business that would help us. What's great about bootstrap, and, and I should say that you're right, VC gets most of the press. There's a small company in Chicago called Basecamp, which has done amazing writing on the alternative model around bootstrapping. They had a really cool series on their blog for a long time called Bootstrapped Profitable and Proud. And what they did is they highlighted businesses that were over a million dollars in revenue, profitable, and I didn't raise outside money. And what that did is it showed kind of a model and it showed like, oh, there is another path, you know? And that other path is, and this is gonna sound more smart ass than I mean it to, is you can have a product, you can charge customers for it, they can pay you, and then you can make money and then you can keep growing from there, right? Organically without, you know, losing money for, you know, a long, long time to get to a certain scale where then the thing flips and you can make money or you can sell ads or whatever it is that you do. Um, so we're just like, we're going to make something people want to pay for and, and figure out how to go from there. So it was hard. I mean, I don't want to like to make it sound that easy. I, I think bootstrapping may be the harder path to go at least in the short run, but it's for us, it helped us achieve our goals, the control of the business. We got to, and, and again, I don't mean this to sound like it's an indictment on the other, <laughs> on the, on the VC side, but we just have one less person in the room. We don't have an investor in the room. Like, so we get to make decisions based on our clients and our employees needs and not have to think about somebody outside who we're, who we're also optimizing for. And so when we think about our values or how fast to grow or where to go, or can we just stay in architecture? Because I know that if we had venture capital, right, it'd be like, how can you guys expand into law, advertising, all the other accounting, all the other professional services verticals? Why aren't you also in manufacturing? And it would just be like, let's get this thing big as fast as we can. And we like really going deep, you know, in one area. So I think it's good to just for people to know that there are options and 
you know, that there's an option where you can, you can do it. You know, you might have to do some of the things like we did, like maxing out credit cards and tapping into 401k and all those kind of entrepreneurship things. But at the end of the day, we're now 11 years in and we are an employee owned company. We have control over our destiny and that that's a pretty powerful thing. Chris, um, you've mentioned a lot of great things between um, talking about knowledge management and the importance of that and the value it brings to firm. And then also lessons learned from being an entrepreneur and, and starting a business, you know, to leave our listeners with a few ideas for 2021, what advice can you share either from either standpoint on, you know, how this relates to how the industry is changing and what opportunities people can grab onto to implement change in their work that they're doing? Hmm. I think one, it's interesting. I don't know that it's totally related to how the industry changes, but it's something that like doing the work to get to know yourself. And if somebody becomes an entrepreneur, you don't have a choice. You're going to be, you know, the, the organization you build will be a mirror of your strengths and your weaknesses. And you'll become very intimate with both. And there's this amazing opportunity if you choose to embrace it to really grow as a human being through being an entrepreneur, through leading other people, through that growth. And so I've invested a lot of time in that. You know, like I've been writing in a journal for 20 years. I've meditated. I do yoga. I do a lot of reflection kind of stuff. And, you know, some of that has been coming to terms with some things about the way I, whatever it was, the way I grew up, the way I was born that like just made me sometimes a little defensive or sometimes, you know, a little bit aggressive or whatever it is. It's like, I've had to like at certain points in the journey, be really clear about what was going on and get to know like myself as a person, strength and weaknesses, but also what's really important to me. And then what's important to all the people I work with. And I do think that like, I'm seeing more of that in this next generation of leadership in our industry. I think it's becoming kinder and more compassionate and less command and control and more inclusive kind of co-op type way of running a business. And I think that's amazing because I actually really think that that's a much more aligned with knowledge management, right? I mean, I think what we see in knowledge management is tacit and explicit knowledge and explicit knowledge is things that you can write down their procedures, their rhino scripts or whatever it is. You can externalize that most not. And people estimate that's around 20% of knowledge. Most of it's tacit. It's in our heads. It's silent. That's tacit is from the same root as taciturn, right? And so it's this deep knowledge that smarts that people carry around with them and they can't necessarily externalize. It's just things that they've learned. And so I think, you know, everybody that serves in a firm has life experience as well as technical experience and design experience that they can add value. And I think the more that companies are able to run really inclusive design processes or software processes or whatever it is, they can tap into more knowledge. And and if we get back to knowledge management being about making the best use of your firm's knowledge to support your goals, like what could be better than being able to really like get the best out of the people that you work with? And they're going to stick around and they're going to be enthusiastic and they're going to want to work there. And so um, I think all of those things come together. That's great. I love that. Um, so Chris, um, tell us more about how people can get more involved with the work that you're doing or learn more about that. Um, yeah. So for, for anybody that's in the industry that's interested, our K Connect, which was an annual conference, it's now a series of monthly kind of deep dives we do. It's wide open to the whole industry and free. So 
on our talk archive page, there's over, over 150 talks about knowledge management in the industry people can see. Um, I, I suggest signing up for our mailing list. Um, we're announcing new things that are coming up, new programs. And so we've got deep dives on equity, diversity, and inclusion, change management, knowledge management. We're gearing up for a really solid 2021. So we'd love to have new folks be part of that journey and, and, and be part of that with us. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on, Chris. And we will link all of this in the show notes so that our listeners can find that information. So I wanted to thank you, Janine, for bringing on Chris to talk about knowledge management. I really think that this topic does not get enough attention within architecture firms, yet we have so much of it that actually needs to be managed. Yeah. And listening to Chris really reminded me of that experience of being in the studio and having um, at different types of firms, different experiences with how partners were managing knowledge. So uh, to Chris's point, like large firms tend to have this type of infrastructure to support knowledge management. And an example is when I worked at Perkins and Will, we had it, it was kind of like a database system where you could look up any employee in the company and you could see their headshot. You would know what their title was. You knew what office they were working in. And it was like a really great way to understand who you were working with, especially when our offices would partner on projects or pursuits. And and that's only just one small way that uh, large firms are doing that kind of knowledge management. And then I think about small and medium-sized firms who are trying to progressively manage this data that they are realizing they're having more and more of. And I think a lot of different firms are, you know, transitioning away from things like Excel spreadsheets and starting to adopt more digital resources that are able to provide this kind of intranet that like Chris is talking about. I want to piggyback off a little bit of that because there's actually, you know, there we have firms that have a long legacy and there's a lot of people right now trying to figure out what the future of work is and what does that mean for square footage development. And I've always wanted those firms that have been around for, I don't, I mean, there's firms that have been around for over 50 years that have done commercial real estate for that long. Like what if they took every single plan that they ever did and essentially took the program out of every plan they did and then had this research article or this article about how office demands and shifts have changed over time, how the firm has accommodated for that, and then take all of that body of research and say, here's where we anticipate it going in the future. I mean, I think there's really interesting ways to use the wealth of data that we have in our drawings even our old projects. Yeah, that's a really good point is is like pulling the data back out to use it later. I know one that comes up a lot from a marketing standpoint is, you know, how much square footage have you done of XYZ program? How many number of projects did you do that was in this project type over the last 10 years? How many projects were lead platinum? All of these things become really useful data points that your staff needs to have access to and be able to look up pretty easily without having to play telephone across the office trying to find the answer. And I've, I've done that so many times chasing principals around the studio trying to f- get them to agree on exactly what the number was for square footage. But it's a good reminder that when you're starting to think about how to manage this, you really have to, and it's, we're going to come back to our word of the season, an intentional step away from 
managing information in your head and organizing it in a clear way, taking it off a disorganized server, putting it somewhere where it's accessible and organized for staff to find it. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's so many different, like, like Chris said, there's so much knowledge out there. When I think about all of the variety of different types of data that firms could be tracking when I, and the different type of information that I was tracking when I was running operations for a strategy group in a design firm, or even the types of information that Slack and other technology firms are tracking, it covers so much. So project management is just one key component. I think, Janine, you've kind of addressed some of the numbers that have come out of there. You can also use those numbers and hours that employees are putting to various different phases to understand if you're overbilling or if you're underbilling or if you're resourcing phases correctly um, based on how fast an employee can act and where their proficiency is in the various different phases. You can also track in a way, uh, individual employee productivity and proficiency, I would say more or less you're, you're really tracking proficiency of the individual employee. But I think you should also be tracking, you know, a professional development. You know, how far are employees moving across the career ladder? What, how are you logging those annual reviews or how are you logging the, the anecdotal reviews that you give your employees? Because you've identified a learning opportunity right after you, you came, you know, they came out of a meeting. I used to have an employee tell me that sometimes they feel that what I hear when I come out of a meeting is what very different from what they have interpreted come out of the meeting. So one of the goals that we set for that employee was after each meeting that we attended together, we would just sit down for five minutes and they would kind of rattle off what they think they heard and what the next steps and outcome is. And then I would say, well, this is my interpretation. And then we would take that and we would write those notes down. But we literally wrote that down as an objective that we could follow. And then the next time we had our review, we can see how far that employee has come, even even in that little area. Um, There's so much to track around business development. I want to go a little bit broader than marketing on this one. Janine, feel free to chime in here, but, um, you know, any interaction you have with a potential client, you can, you can track, um, every, if, if you're on the residential side, you can track every single interaction you've had with a family member. Um, if they mention a birthday, if they mention an anniversary, those are all of a sudden opportunities for you to reach out to potential clients impromptu because you happen to remember a significant date in their life. Um, nothing more than to say, hi, happy birthday. It's been a while. Would you like to go grab coffee or would you like to go grab lunch? Oh, I 100% agree. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, from there, and I, I struggle with this number, right? Because architecture firms often say a lot that 80 to 90% of their work comes from repeat clients. So how are you ensuring that you deliver a consistent client experience? Is there data that you can keep around hot topics, maybe even political or religious topics that you just make sure you never bring up with that client? Or are there favorite sports teams that you need to make sure that if you knew the game, if you knew the results of last Sunday's game, then you just have an easier conversation opener with that client. 
And we talked a little bit about this, but I think it also goes back to maintaining an overall employee and client experience. Yeah, you mentioned also uh, when we were talking offline about the preferred communication styles, like that's something that you can track within a shared communication document with your team that so that your your coworkers understand like how your client likes to communicate what are typical norms to expect are they going to be all email or is it better to just pick up the phone and i know we're sharing a lot of ideas here and and this is certainly not intended to be something that you would adopt all at once but rather something that you build over time and it needs to live in a place where it is again, accessible to promote that transparency and create efficiency around access, but also like that it's like a living document where everyone in the studio can have access to some of these items and they grow and evolve over time. And I think the biggest takeaway that we definitely were discussing after our conversation with Chris is this idea that all architecture firms are knowledge firms. Um, he's talked about that a lot in his work, and we agree. And we think there's important data points that we need to start learning how to track in our firms. Yeah, and I, I think it was it's interesting here. You know, I'm working very hard to set up more personal productivity systems for myself this year. And, you know, I think we all have to acknowledge that in order to become more productive, it takes some time to set up like what is the right system uh, for you to use. So so that's going to be true of like within firms, right? It's going to take some time to figure out where should we be storing this? How should we be storing it? How often should we be collecting it? How do we continue to look at this data and decide whether or not we're improving or not? But the reality is it saves you a lot of time in the long run. So like a really a really personal example here is I'm constantly having I have two young kids, five and three, and I can never remember what size clothing I ordered from them the last time, all only that they're just like growing out of their clothes. So that means every time that they glow out of their clothes, I need to go and hunt down their shirts, their pants, their shoes <laughs> to get the size. So I know what like the future size is. So literally this weekend, I spent this weekend putting all of their current clothing sizes into a spreadsheet on my computer. So the next time I order and I need to order one size up, I just open that spreadsheet, adjust and order the next size and then record that. And it's all in one place now. And it doesn't have to be huge, tedious things either. It's just if you find yourself accessing something very frequently and it's 20 f- subfolders down and you just need it in a place where you can like pull it out immediately and reference it continuously, inevitably, probably somebody else at the firm also wants easier access to that information and you're just creating a, a quicker path to find those things. Can you share a little bit about, I know you were telling me about the OKRs, and I think, I guess they're similar to KPIs in some way. Can you tell me how those get used in your company or what what people can take away from that? So I think a lot of it also is kind of what do we do with these data points? So a lot of technology firms that I create, uh, that I've that I've worked with, and even some architecture firms, they use the data points to create what we call OKRs or objective and key results or key performance indicators. 
a good one is an NPS, a net promoter score. So what is your what is the likelihood that your employees are going to go out and say, this is an amazing firm to come work for? You're, the higher your net promoter score is, the more likely every single one of your employees are going to go out and do that. So you can gather data around that by doing an annual employee survey. And then the KPIs for us that come out of that or the OKRs is just like, well, our employees are telling us that we're really bad communicators, but they love our events. So we really want to move the needle on how well we communicate with our employees. So that would become a primary OKR and you would work to create and improve that the next time you do an employee annual survey. So that's just one way of of using knowledge, just even of how your employees feel about the culture of your firm. Yeah. And I think we also talked about benchmarks and the opportunity when you realize those data points or you realize patterns in the data that you create these benchmarks and that you can consistently start measuring against them. I know like this makes sense. And especially when we compare it to the idea of like building performance, like energy performance, you can measure that over time. Um, similarly, within your organization, there are things that you can measure over time to track, like if, how is your business improving and growing? Again, I know we're sharing a lot of ideas here, um, but I think, you know, one of the things that was really exciting for us, especially um, as entrepreneurs, was to listen to Chris talk about designing the business and, and building it in a way that it grows. Yeah, so the conversation was a lot about knowledge management, but it was also about designing your business in a way where you're not overwhelmed and where it's working for you. Right. So Chris talked about how he was really intentional about how he approached his business. He wanted a business that had a stable source of income, even through the pandemic. And software for him was the solution, right? A subscription based software where people are going to continue to pay. So you don't have that cliff that he was referring to where all of a sudden you're worried about how you're going to make payroll the next month. So he was really intentional about built, designing his business that way. And he did it very carefully. And he grew at a scale that was most comfortable to him. So he bootstrapped it. He didn't really take on a whole lot of debt. He didn't need to fundraise or bring on any financial partners. And he's doing okay in one of the most expensive cities in the world um, and pretty happy with where he is, serving the clients that he wants and getting all the all the knowledge development that he needs out of what he's doing. So there were so many things that we talked about in this interview, and I just want to point our listeners to the show notes. There's a lot of links that we're going to include that there's, you know, different articles and reading and resources that you can follow up on if you're interested in these ideas to learn more. Yes. And at the very least, if you're at a company that doesn't do an employee annual survey, ask them why or ask yourself why you don't do an employee annual survey. Thanks for joining us on Practice Disrupted, a podcast by Practice of Architecture. Visit us at practiceofarchitecture.com to find out more about future episodes and the changing nature of practice. We have several ways you can get involved with our growing community. Find us on social media at Practice of Arc, 
You can also become a member of the POA Lab or join us on Patreon. And if you want to take your career or practice to the next level, Janine and I also consult, provide workshops, and speak regularly on this research, and we would love an opportunity to collaborate with you. This show is part of Gable Media. You can learn more about other podcasts and video channels in our community by visiting gablmedia.com. We are also looking for sponsors who want to partner with us in 2021 and beyond. If that's you, please contact me directly at evelyn at practiceofarchitecture.com. If you like the research we're doing here, please help us out by leaving a rating or review on Apple. We appreciate you subscribing on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to share with your friends and feel free to let us know what other topics or speakers you're interested in hearing from. Thanks for listening and see you next week.